Welcome to the Dental is Anything podcast, where we dive headfirst into the wonder and mystery of everything and anything dental. I'm your host, Matt Hopcraft. Welcome back to Dental is Anything. If you missed the last episode talking about ethics and professionalism with Dr. Jody Heap, you really should go back and have a listen. It's a great discussion on the basics of ethics in healthcare. And in some ways, it's a good primer for some of the issues that we're going to be talking about today in this episode. So this week, we're talking about public health in Australia and the implications for the dental profession. Listener Ben contacted me and asked if I could do an episode on public dentistry. He'd been reading a lot about the National Health Service, the NHS in the United Kingdom and some of the problems that they're having there. And he wanted to know where Australia is heading at the moment, particularly with a lot of talk about possible reforms and the way that we fund dental care in Australia. And certainly for anyone who's been looking at the NHS over in the UK, they're going through some really significant troubles at the moment. Now, when I say public dentistry, people normally just kind of switch off because they immediately think about public sector dentistry, the provision of care in the public sector, and they think that that has nothing to do with them. After all, 85% of dental practitioners work in the private sector, and so the majority of dental practitioners don't really think about what happens in the public sector or the particular issues or challenges that are happening there. But I'm talking here about a a broader scope about what we mean by public dentistry, specifically in the way that dental services are funded and that intersection of public funding with the dental profession and in particular with the private dental sector. And this is something that should be of interest to all dental practitioners. And I think that's why Ben wanted me to have have this talk. So we know that dentistry is a big business. Australia spend just over $11 billion a year on dental care, which is about 5% of the total health expenditure in Australia. Now, as I said, we know about 85% of that care is provided in the private sector, but that's not all privately funded. A lot of government funding, a lot of public funding, ultimately finds its way into the private sector. In fact, around $1 in every five that's spent on dental care in Australia comes from the public purse. $1.3 billion from the Commonwealth Government and $963 million from state governments. So, for example, the federal government spends $78 million on dental care for military veterans through the Department of Veterans Affairs scheme. The Child Dental Benefits Schedule pumps about $350 million into the dental economy each year. And nearly 90% of that is spent in the private sector. Now, there's a reasonably long history of of this type of funding, like the Child Dental Benefit Schedule. It goes back probably 30 years. So before the CDBS, we had the Teen Dental Scheme, which wasn't really well supported. It It wasn't a very good scheme, to be honest. It only funded checkups and it had no actual treatment provision. And that's why it wasn't utilized very well, but fortunately then turned into the CDBS. Before the teen dental scheme, we had a chronic disease dental scheme that focused on providing care for people with chronic illnesses and recognising that there was that sort of um, relationship between poor oral health and chronic illnesses like diabetes or um, cardiovascular disease, for example. And the chronic disease scheme put something like $1.3 billion, probably more, into the dental economy over a number of years, and again, into the private sector. And you know, we can have an interesting debate about whether that program was successful or not, but it did provide a lot of care to a lot of people who needed it. And then if we go all the way back to 1993, Paul Keating introduced the Commonwealth Dental Health Program to tackle long public sector waiting lists, but that scheme allowed for the provision of care in the private sector as well. So we've got this long history of public funding helping to support care provision in the private sector. 
But by far at the moment, the largest amount of public funding for dental care is actually the private health insurance rebate to encourage people to take out private health insurance. And that's an important government policy that has existed for a long time. Now, again, we can have some really interesting philosophical or ideological discussions about the role of private health insurance and the value of that in the Australian healthcare system. And that's probably a, a, a good discussion for another episode. But the reality is that private health insurance is a big part of healthcare in Australia and a really integral part of dentistry. Around 55% of Australians have extras cover that part of private health insurance that uh, people can use on the provision of dental care. And the, the Commonwealth Government spends $771 million per year to support people taking out extras cover. That includes cover for dental services. So that's more than double what they spend on the child dental benefit schedule for the provision of services. As a consequence, health fund payments contribute nearly $2.2 billion to the dental economy each year. So that's another $1 in every five that's being essentially propped up by this government support because I think I think we all know and the government certainly knows that if they didn't have the private health insurance rebate, the proportion of people who have private health insurance would drop dramatically. So that $770 million from the Commonwealth government is really important to underpinning that $2.2 billion of private health insurance fund that people spend on dental services. Um, And if that was removed, it would certainly have a detrimental effect on the private dental sector. So when I talk about public dentistry, it's not just the $963 million that state and territory governments spend on their public dental services, supported by another $100 million from the Commonwealth government for those publicly run dental services. It's this broader picture of how governments subsidise and support access to dental services that are provided in the private sector. Now, before we talk about where we might be heading in terms of reforms to public funding in dentistry, it's worth taking a step back to think about how our health system in Australia broadly operates, because I think that provides some really important context for this discussion. I suspect if you asked most people to, to describe our healthcare system, one word that might come up commonly is the word universal. You know, I often talk about universal health care, universal health coverage, and it's a word that's being talked about in the context of where we might be heading in terms of dental reforms. So it's important to understand what universal health care means and whether it's actually an accurate description of our healthcare system. And I think for many people, the assumption is that universal health care means free health care, free health care for everyone. If we look at a definition of what universal health coverage is, it describes a system where all people have access to a full range of health services that they need, when and where they need them, without financial hardship, and it should cover the full spectrum of essential health services, from health promotion and prevention at one end to treatment at the other and palliative care, and it should extend across the life course. Now, what's immediately apparent from that definition is that firstly it talks about care without financial hardship, which is fundamentally different from free care. So universal health coverage doesn't mean that it needs to be free. It just means that we need a system that allows people to access care without any financial impediments for them. And that's really important when we start talking about whether we have or need universal coverage for dental care, 
that doesn't mean that we're jumping straight away to this idea that it's free care for everyone because that's not what universal health coverage means. Universal health coverage should also cover the full spectrum of essential health services. And I would like to think that we can all agree that the mouth is a part of the body and that oral health is a subset of our, of our overall health. And therefore, dental care to treat oral and dental diseases should certainly fit within that definition of what essential health care is. So where does that leave our healthcare system? I think certainly in terms of medical care, we can say that it is broadly universal in that we have a, a national health insurance model, Medicare, it's funded by taxation, with health services that are provided to patients, to all patients in Australia, through either the public or the private system. So we have this, this mixed system of public and private. No one's denied care, but there is some rationing. There are waiting times for certain uh, parts of care. Um, and the model extends to subsidising you know, not only trips to see a, a general practitioner, but hospital care, diagnostic imaging and, and medications as well. But it doesn't extend to the provision of dental care. So if we talk about our healthcare system, healthcare is certainly not universal. Our medical care system, I think, meets that sort of definition of, of universal health coverage. Um, the Medicare component of that that helps to re remove the financial impediments and providing that full range of care to all people in the population. But our dental care system, as we'll see, certainly doesn't meet any, any definition of universal coverage, certainly in terms of providing care to people when and where they need it, because we know that there are challenges for people in some parts of the country, um, but also without financial hardship across the whole population. So that then gets us to thinking, well, why are we even talking about public funding of dental care anyway. Last year, the Australian Senate, led by the Greens, held an inquiry into dental services, focusing on the issues of access and the provision of dental care. So we say, well, what was the purpose of the inquiry and what was the problem that they were supposed to be looking at? Because, you, you know, you would hope that, um, you know, the government's looking at things because they've identified that there's a, a need to do so, that there's a problem. And I think if you talk to a lot of people in the dental profession, as I, as I do, um, some of them would, would say that there's not a problem at all and that they, there really wasn't a need for this Senate inquiry. They think our system is, is working fine. So we need to dig into this issue of, is there a problem or not? Is our dental care system working fine? And, and certainly, you know, it may well be for some, for some people. It may well be for some patients and it certainly may well be working well for some dental practitioners. But I think the evidence tells us that it's failing a large number of people. And if we go back to that, that idea of universal coverage, we should have a healthcare system that is providing care for the whole population, not just a subset of the population. So what does the evidence tells us? It tells us that only around half of the population visit the dentist every year. Now, setting aside whether there's good evidence that supports the benefits of annual checkups or not, we know that most dentists encourage their patients to visit at least once a year, which means that there is a clearly a significant proportion of patients who aren't doing what dentists recommend that they should be doing. And when we dig into that group a little bit more, we see some really concerning trends. So just over one in 10 adults whose last dental visit was more than five years ago. So we can quibble about, you know, is there good evidence around annual checkups or not, or six monthly checkups or not? But certainly I think we can all agree that if people are going five years or longer and much, much longer in some cases between dental visits, 
then it's much more likely that their oral health is going to deteriorate, that things will go undetected, and they'll go from being something that's preventable or reversible to something that requires treatment, so maybe a filling or maybe an extraction. And the whole purpose of regular checkups is early diagnosis, early intervention and prevention. So a large proportion of the population are missing out on that. As a result, we know that one in three adults have untreated tooth decay, three in 10 have moderate to severe gum disease. So the data is telling us that the dental system isn't meeting the needs of the whole population. And it shouldn't surprise us to know which segments of the population are missing out on care. So the people with the highest burden of disease, with the most tooth decay, with the most gum disease, with the most missing teeth, with more toothache, and the ones who don't visit regularly, are also people from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds with lower income or lower education. They have non-English speaking backgrounds, people from First Nations backgrounds, and people living in regional and rural areas in Australia. And we know that poor oral health is one of the strongest indicators of social disadvantage in Australia. You can, you can tell someone's background by their smile. So there's this argument then that, is this just people making choices about whether or not to engage with the healthcare system or when they decide they want to engage in the healthcare system? And that really then, poor oral health outcomes are really just a consequence of their individual behaviour. And we need to respect their individual autonomy to make those choices. Um, and so that's just the, the, the system that we have is really just a reflection of that. And that there's really no more that we should be doing. Plus, we have a public sector safety net, that public sector that helps to um, reduce the affordability issue. And we have a private system that people can choose to prioritise their spending on if they so wish. Now, I, I would obviously strongly contest this line of thinking because it ignores all of the evidence that we have about social and commercial determinants of health, which is why we see these large inequalities in oral health outcomes in the first place. And we see that not just in, in oral diseases, we see this across a wide range of diseases so that, that evidence about the social and commercial determinants is really, really strong and really important driver for these inequalities that we see. And I don't think that people are actively choosing to have poor oral health. They're not, they're not sitting at home thinking, well, I'll just choose not to go and look after my oral health. Um, there are barriers. There are financial barriers. There are structural barriers to people accessing dental care. And I think we need to be really careful um, because this, this starts to get into this area of us moralizing about the choices that other people are making. Um, and particularly when it comes from, from the privileged position that we have in the, in the dental profession. And if we look at the, the public sector, yes, we have a safety net. Yes, it exists, but it's not funded anywhere near enough to provide care to the 40% of the population who are eligible to access public dental services. Um, as a consequence, we see long waiting lists in many parts of the country. Um, as a consequence of that, we see people's oral health deteriorate while they're on long waiting lists. And often there's a strong emphasis on emergency care to deal with the emergencies that arise from people who are on waiting lists for such a long period of time. So yes, the safety net exists, but it's not, again, not really meeting the need. It's not a, it's not a true proper safety net because it's simply not funded in the way that, that it needs to be. And then I do wonder about this sort of line of argument that places dentistry separately from the rest of health, that it's the idea 
in oral health perspective for people to prioritise their their oral health and their their spending on accessing dental services. Um, but we don't make them do the same thing for the rest of their their healthcare. So we don't make them you know prioritise their funding for medical care or for hospital care. And that's kind of the antithesis of universal coverage. And if we did believe that, and, and maybe some people do believe this, that you know we should be reducing the funding in our hospital system and moving much more to a user-pays kind of system and dismantling our universal healthcare system. But I think we can see the outcome of that in oral health with really large disparities. And I think that would be a, a terrible thing for us to move down if we did similar sorts of things in medical health. So how, how much of an issue is affordability. Uh, I recently wrote a piece about affordability of dental care, noting that, you know, if you if you look back sort of 20, 30, 40 years at people's average incomes and at private dental fees, the cost of going to the dentist hasn't grown faster than income over the last 40 years or so, which kind of suggests that um, dentistry is not more unaffordable now than it was 40 years ago. It is worth noting in that kind of analysis, though, that um, there are there are other changes. So, cost of living, and particularly right now, um, is is a really big issue. The cost of housing, the cost of um, of food, the cost of energy, um, and that takes up a larger proportion of people's um, income than it did previously, leaving less of that disposable income for dental services. Um, so, it's not surprising, therefore, that with those sort of changes going on, that people are saying that cost is a significant barrier to accessing dental care. And and that kind of data, again, has, has existed for a long time as well. Clearly, a lot of people view dental care as a luxury item rather than as an essential part of healthcare. And there's, I think there's a, an important piece of work that we need to be doing as a profession around helping people to understand why oral health care is so important. But there's no doubt that cost is a significant barrier to many people in accessing dental care. Now, I mentioned the Senate inquiry into dental services. Part of the inquiry was a survey that received nearly 18,000 responses from members of the public. And that really highlighted for me and for a lot of people, I think, some of the problems. So I'm just going to quote a couple of, a couple of people's comments in this public survey, members of the public. I've come to the heartbreaking realisation that I cannot afford this treatment. My front tooth will eventually fall out, and as the disease progresses, I'll lose the rest of my teeth with it. Another person said, The pain in my mouth affects my general well-being, and the lack of regular basic dental care takes away dignity and self-respect, as well as the inability to enjoy food properly. And another person, a carer, said, She's been in a lot of pain, and has been on the wait list to receive treatment via general anaesthetic by public dental health services for over a year. I think you can you can see from these quotes, and, and these are representative of a large number of people, that our system is not meeting the needs of all of the population. Now, I mentioned the last episode where we talked about ethics and professionalism and what it means to be a professional and the obligations that professions have as a, as a professional group, but also that professionals, individual professionals have to society. You know, we have a lot of um, privilege in being in a profession, but I think that that also then imposes certain obligations 
on the profession. And one of those for a health profession is to improve the health of the whole community, not just a subset of the community who can afford to pay. And so I think that there's this really strong kind of ethical, moral, professional obligation on us to really be considering reform to our system because of these gaps that we're seeing, because of the inequities that we're seeing and the poor oral health that results as a consequence. So, you know, I think when you look at all of this data, it is pretty apparent that it's failing a lot of people and that we need to be doing more. Now, it's worth pondering, I think, why we treat the mouth differently from the rest of the body. Because if you look at the way that government funds healthcare, they fund 94% of public hospital care split you know, roughly 50-50 between the Commonwealth and the states. They fund 84% of your GP visits through Medicare. They fund 77% of referred medical services, so referring to, to medical specialists. Um, they fund a large proportion of subsidised uh, pharmaceutical care. But by contrast, they only fund 20% of dental care, and nearly half of that is going into private health insurance rebates. Um, and if, if we think about you know, ha- who we're supporting with private health insurance rebates and then where the, the disease inequities lie, the two different parts of the population. So there's this really big disparity in the way that governments fund dental care and the way that governments fund medical care. And I think we do a disservice to us as a profession when we try to argue on the one hand that oral health is really important and that we need to put the mouth back into the body. And yet, at the same time, we're not out there arguing for similar levels of government support and funding for people to be able to access care because it's sending the wrong message to people. If the government doesn't fund it, it's clearly not important. Um, you know, they fund my medical care, they fund my um, visit to the to the hospital, um, but they don't fund oral health. Therefore, oral health isn't important. So I think there's this, you know kind of really strong argument there as well about why we should be doing this. Um, And then, you know, we think about ourselves individually, we're happy to go to the doctor or the hospital and know that that care is really heavily subsidised by taxpayers, by us, Um, but we don't accept that there's a need for exactly the same kind of support for dental care. Now, this whole thing started with, with a question from Ben about the NHS, and usually when we get to this discussion, this point of the discussion, talking about reform in dental funding in Australia, the example of the NHS is always trotted out. And people point out the myriad of problems that the NHS is going through at the moment and has gone through um, for for a a period of time. And the arguments kind of, you know, look how bad the NHS is. It's terrible. We definitely don't want that here. So let's just keep things the way that we are. Now, I don't know whether that's sort of like a really intentional ploy or not, using the NHS as an example in a way of just shutting down any debate on reform. You know, it's such a terrible system, so let's just not even go there. Or just to, you know, not engage in any kind of further discussion or debate on it at all. But it's, it's, that's a, there's an assumption, I guess, implicit there that the NHS is the only alternative we've got. We've got our system, good or bad as it might be, um, or we've got the NHS, which is terrible. Ours is better, so let's just leave things um, where they are, case closed. Um, or maybe the argument is, look, things here are actually really good. We're not recognising or seeing that there's enough of a problem. If it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in that argument. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I've seen too many times where 
we go down a path of change, you know, anywhere in, in, in what we do um, without really kind of considering whether that change is necessary. And I'm always really concerned about unintended consequences when we look to change things unnecessarily. But I think we've made a pretty strong, compelling argument that, that the system is broke. It's not meeting the needs of a large number of people. And so we do have to fix it. And we do need to be mindful of, of um, unintended consequences, absolutely. Um, and also, I think, you know, if we, if we maintain the status quo, if we just sit back and say, look, it's, it's too hard or it's too difficult or we just don't see the need to make a change, then we are accepting, we are very explicitly accepting that the disparity in oral health outcomes continues to exist. And I don't think that that's a position that any profession, that a health profession with our social responsibility should be advocating. So that then gets us to this question, well, what is the best way of us addressing this? Is it moving to an NHS system? Now, I, I've never heard anyone actually advocate and argue that we should be moving to a system that resembles anything like the NHS. And I think that that this argument is a, is a distraction. It's a way of, of, you know, sort of curtailing the debate on this. Um, I think it's important to understand why why that is. And it's really, I think, fundamental is because our health system is very different from the UK. It's very different from, from a whole lot of other healthcare systems. Each healthcare system around the world sort of evolves within its own particular context and environment. And that's, that's always a problem then, I think, with international comparisons. And it was one of the questions we were asked in the Senate inquiry, you know, what, which countries do things well and which countries don't do things well. And you're never really comparing like for like when you do that. Um, you know, asking that question, where is this done well, sort of presupposes that we could actually then just easily replicate that system here. And there's myriad reasons why that's really challenging, really difficult to do. Um, at one end, there are, there are structural issues. So, for example, our dental care system is predominantly private. And if we wanted to move to a system that had a much stronger emphasis on private sector care, uh, sorry, on public sector care, because we have 40% of, of patients who kind of meet that public sector eligibility, our, our current workforce structure just doesn't allow that. There are issues related to funding and taxation. How would we fund more um, care in, in the dental system? In, and then the sort of, the, I guess, the context of our political structures that are really different to other parts of the world. You know, the Scandinavian countries are often talked about, um, but they have a really different political taxation structure than we have here that enables them to fund and do things differently. And then we need to think about the cultural issues. So how does a society value health? How do they expect their governments to provide or not provide, as the case may be, for their health care? Um, so those, you know, we need to take those sort of factors into account when we look at what's happening in other parts of the world. And I think they're really strong reasons why, you know, this, you know, can we, can we have the NHS or should we have the NHS? Well, I, I think it would just be, you know, not possible to actually do that here anyway, notwithstanding the other sort of reasons why we might not want to do that anyway. And... Speaking of, of cultural issues, um, we do talk a lot in Australia about those values of fairness and equity, and I think that that's really important in our thinking, you know, that should underpin the way that we do think about improving our healthcare system, fairness and equity in terms of access and of outcomes for people.
So, you know, what do we do? I think it's really important that we work within the constraints of our current system, um, but also the strengths of our current system. We have a predominantly private sector workforce, and that trend is probably increasing. So, although there's value in looking at how we boost the public sector, and I think, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about how we can get the Commonwealth in particular, but also states, to increase their funding to boost the public sector, that's not the solution to the problem. 40% of the population um, are eligible to access public dental services. We would need to boost our workforce such that 40% um, of the workforce works in the in the public sector. Now that might be a, a long-term you know, goal that we might want to focus on, but it's certainly not a solution in the short term. It'd need some really strong incentives to get people to work in the in the public sector. Um, and that, you know, for a range of reasons is going to be really challenging. Whatever system that we that we sort of start to look towards moving towards and reforming needs to have a really strong focus on health promotion and prevention. Um, I think we really need to look at how we expand the, the workforce into areas of need and particularly in those areas where people are missing out on care. You know, we talked about universal coverage as part of that being when and where people uh, need to access services. So that's getting more of the workforce out into regional and remote areas, into areas of Aboriginal health, um, supporting people with disabilities or supporting people living in residential aged care facilities, a number of areas where we see um, really significant health, oral health disparities. Um, and then that funding needs to make sure that it follows that workforce as well. I think where we really need to be looking at, you know, we talked a little bit about the child dental benefit schedule. Here's a scheme that is designed to provide care to, you know, roughly 40% of the population um, who meet that, that um, income disparity threshold. Um, it's mostly used in the private sector, so it recognises the workforce that we currently have, and it works within that, that system. Um, it's not as well utilised as it should be, and so there's a whole piece of work that needs to be done there about improving the utilisation of that. But I think if we look at ways that we can build on the strength and the success of the CDBS and extend that into other population groups, that's the most logical way that we can, that we can start to close this gap and improve the oral health um, and reduce those, those disparities and those inequities. We know that the CDBS is well utilised in the private sector. The vast majority of dental practitioners utilise it. Um, that concept has broad acceptance from, from patients as well. And so we can look at then, well, how do we extend this to other population groups? Um, the older Australians, for me, are the most logical place to start. We had a Royal Commission into Aged Care, Safety and Quality. They recommended essentially a seniors dental benefit scheme um, replicating the model of the CDBS, but for older patients with a healthcare card or a pensioner concession card. I think doing that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then we look at ways to, to close that age group. So you've got the CDBS at one end for, for patients zero to 17 years of age. You've got a seniors dental benefit scheme at the other, patients 65 plus perhaps with a healthcare card. And then you just look at moving that um, to cover the, the people 18 to 64 um, with a healthcare card, pension and concession card that meet that sort of um, financial threshold, if you like. Um, and then we've got a system that, that actually removes that financial barrier that we know exists 
um, and goes a little bit of the way to addressing that part of the universal health coverage aspect. The next question then is, do, do we extend that to the whole population? Do we make it truly universal or not? I think, I think we're a long way away from that because of the workforce issues that, that would be required to, to kind of address that. Um, but moving towards that kind of system, and I think that they're the, they're the things that the Senate are really looking at and the Australian government then is really strongly considering, is how do we, how do we expand a system that we already have, that we know that works, that's used in the public and the private sector, so it helps to support both of those sectors. Um, it gives people choice. It gives people... Uh, it respects the individual autonomy. Um, I think that that's the way that we really need to be moving. So hopefully for, for listener Ben and for everyone else out there who's listening, um, this has given a, a bit of a, an overview of where, we're at, where we are with public funding and where we should be potentially moving towards. Um, certainly if there are other listeners out there who have questions that they would like me to cover in, in podcasts, by all means contact me. Um, but I think that this is a really interesting space that we all in the profession, no matter where we work and what we do, really need to keep an eye on what the Senate and what the Australian government are going to be doing because the potential for reform is there um, and the changes will, will affect and benefit not only patients but, but the profession as well. And I think that we as a profession need to be on board with this and, and really strongly advocating for this change. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining me at Dental as Anything. Until next time. Mm-hmm.